Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. This is Brother Jonathan. And today we're going to be talking about whether or not women have to wear head coverings. Um, I learned a lot in studying for this episode, and this episode was delayed quite a bit, a couple weeks at least. This passage um, that we're going to be talking about is a greatly disputed passage by some people. Um, One of the big problems that contributes to the confusion over this passage is that most of us do only a little bit of research and study, and that's it. As a result, there are a lot of articles, books, YouTube channels, and videos, etc., that are completely contradictory. Um, It is pervasive, and I'm not joking. People will appeal to the exact same things that teach the exact opposite things. On top of that, some people just assert some things that are completely false. When you only reference one source and don't examine the arguments to the contrary, um, you will guarantee that you'll come to a false conclusion a lot of the time, especially over this issue. People are very invested in how they interpret this passage on all sides of it. Um, There is a lot of hard-heartedness and self-righteousness built up from the abuse of this passage of Scripture, and that should never be the case. I would encourage you to listen to this whole episode, because no matter which side you are coming from, um, from the side of coverings are necessary, or the side of they they aren't necessary at all, um, I believe that you'll learn something. And I'm not going to tell you at the beginning of this episode what conclusion I came to, because most people who disagree will just turn it off without even examining themselves. And the question is, do you want what is true? See, when you come to the scriptures, you have to be willing to accept what it says as authoritative. If you are not willing to accept um, whatever the scriptures command us, whatever it is, then you will find every excuse to believe that the scriptures say something else. Um, Usually that's the case when people have a line in the sand that they don't want to cross. People get confronted with the possibility that the Bible commands something they don't like, and they think, well, it just can't mean that. I mean, God wouldn't expect that from me. Um, And there's almost an indignation about it. Um, In saying that, you have to be willing to accept that your denomination or group may be completely wrong. And that's for any time you examine something from the scriptures, and not just in this case. If you are not willing to accept that, just willing, which is certainly possible because people are not infallible, and all the churches is a group of people, then you are just wasting your time even reading the Bible. If you love your denomination or church brethren or anyone, more than the truth of Christ, then he says that you're not worthy of him in Luke 14, 26. Um, Just go accept what your pastor says if that's the way you feel, and that's just idolatry. Um, God's word is the authority, not you or your church or your denomination or the person who discipled you. I don't care how special a group of people are to you. They are God. You're accountable to God. So let him have that rightful authority over your life that you claim he has if you profess to be a Christian. But I know that there are sincere people on both sides of this issue. There are people who sincerely believe that the scriptures say that you don't have to wear a head covering. And there are people who sincerely believe that you do. If you're sincere in your beliefs on the matter, then you ought to believe it because you believe it to be the true interpretation of Scripture. And you should believe what you believe solely because you believe it is true to Scripture. So it's the truth that you should want. So if evidence comes that shows that your understanding of the passage is flawed, you should be willing to change your practice because you just want the truth. Right? I only ask that you consider what I'm going to go over and keep that in mind. Let's start with some background from inside the um, book of 1 Corinthians. There are some things to consider before going through the passage. By the time of this writing in 1 Corinthians, 
Um, Paul had already spent 18 months teaching the Corinthians in person. You would know that from Acts 18.11. After that, he wrote a letter instructing them to not company with fornicators or sexually immoral people, which is recorded in 1 Corinthians 5.9, where he says, I wrote into you a letter before time, you know, to not company with fornicators. Then he sent Timothy to remind them of his teaching, 1 Corinthians 4.17. Paul received some reports that there were contentions or divisions among them in uh, chapter 1, verse 11. He had also received three of them, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, where he probably then received their letter and questions that are mentioned in chapter 7, verse 1. The Corinthians had been taught and instructed for quite a long time in person, through a letter, and indirectly through Timothy without the issue of head coverings being an issue. And we can't, we can't read any more into that than just that. Anytime you come to a passage, you have to understand the context, the immediate context first. Whatever someone wants to say about this passage, it was originally written to a group of people living at Corinth in the first century. Paul was not was probably not expecting that people 1950 years later were going to be reading this letter and scrutinizing every single aspect of his content, form, and language. He was expecting these average Christ- Cor- Corinthian citizens who were believers to understand what he was saying. Seeing that they were first century Corinthians, you must understand the background of the social, cultural, and religious setting of the city of Corinth. And some people buck against that, but the fact of the matter is, the people at Corinth were the first people who received this letter. They were the first people to understand this letter. And they understood it correctly. And so we need to understand how they understood it correctly. You need to understand the background of that Paul was writing to. The believers at Corinth lived in Corinth most likely when they were converted. Um, this means they came from that background. Paul says to them in uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so this description fits some of them in the congregation. They were those things themselves, Paul said. And Paul adds in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 2, he says, Ye know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. So they, or at least it seems it seems a majority of them, were previously pagans. There is very little in this epistle to suggest a large background in Judaism. There were a few mentioned by name, a few Jews, but the majority seem to have been Gentile converts from idolatry. We get a glimpse of the social demographic of the congregation from what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 26, where he says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And the fact that Paul says not many implies that there were at least some who were converted from these groups. Um, Those wise after the world, those mighty in power and influence, and those that were noble. It's been estimated that nine out of the 17 persons and groups mentioned in the epistle are of a relatively high social status. Although we contrast this with Paul's comments later in uh, chapter 12, verse 13, where he says, For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit. And uh, chapter 7, verse 20 through 24, where Paul says, Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. Paul's addressing the idea of servants and slaves twice in the epistle indicates that there were probably a portion of them in the congregation. And this fits with what we know historically that the majority of Christians early on were of the lower ranks of society. 
It was a source of mocking to outsiders. So in the Corinthian congregation, there were various social ranks of all kinds, from slaves to chief men such as Crispus. There were some Jews, but mostly Gentiles. There were educated and uneducated. Now, the cultural customs of the day cannot be ignored. In his master's thesis on this passage, Kevin L. Moore had a lot of good things to point out about this. I was studying for this episode, and I found his thesis was much more developed than what I was preparing. I also agree with his conclusion. Um, in fact, out of all the treatments of the subject that I found, Moore's thesis was probably the most fair and extensive. And I'm going by a lot of his outline and points in this episode, so I'll give credit to where it is due. I encourage you to read it for yourself if this topic is important to you personally. It's very in-depth, very extensive. Um, I'll put the PDF for download above the episode on the podcast page at remnantbiblefellowship.com. Um, but Moore had some excellent comments, excellent points to bring out regarding the cultural customs issue. Uh, one, cultural customs change over time. Uh, for example, the Bible itself spans several thousand years from beginning to end. It is inappropriate and misleading to refer to how things are done in, quote, Bible times without being more specific to which age. An example I can think of is um, prophets used to be called seers, and that's specifically mentioned in the book of Kings very early on, that that, that had passed into a different um, term. That's a kind of a cultural thing that changed over time. Two, if possible, the geographical location of a given practice needs to be clarified. The same ethnic group often had different practices in different regions. More cites Shane and Black mentioning the example of the Jewish women in various places ordinarily not covering their faces while the Jewesses in Arabia did. Customs and practices changed sometimes depending on the location even when the ethnic group had the same heritage. Uh, three, you can't put too much stock on evidence from paintings, sculptures, and other representations. And I know that's really big in certain people's presentations on the issue of head coverings, um, particularly those who are obsessed with the anti-Nicene fathers. Um, because sometimes artists don't depict reality. Sometimes it is depicting a classical style and not a modern one. Is it depicting a moral person or an immoral person? What class of society is the person? In the end, even if it is shown that a moral person in the first century did do something as a habitual custom, it still doesn't prove that all people across social, all social classes in all regions did it, though many people try to argue that way. So you can't put too much stock on pictures, paintings, and sculptures. That's not enough to base a view on. Um, for what an, is an author's source for teaching what they do? Gordon Fee well said, it seems to be the case of one scholar's guess becoming a second scholar's footnote and a third scholar's assumption. What is the writer's method for arriving at his conclusion? What is the quality of his source? Um, books and articles are written all the time by all sorts of people. That doesn't make them reliable or true. Six, uh, five, we have to understand a text in its original context. Only then are we, can we ascertain whether or not it is meant for us today. If the original recipients of the writing of Paul understood it to be setting forth a custom to be perpetually observed, only then can we expect it of us today. If they did not understand that to be the case, then we cannot force it upon anyone today. We cannot make the mistakes of forcing the present to be bound to past customs falsely or reading the present into the past. Both of those are errors. Now, when it comes to reference works on the subject of relevant customs in ancient times, it's just a mess. If you begin looking at stuff, you can get a number of scholars on your side to quote from, regardless of what your view is. There is no doubt that this is a contributing factor to the confusion of people's understanding of this topic today. Depending on who or what you read first, you may get a different understanding every day of the week. 
However, when you eliminate outdated reference works and try to get down to primary sources, while acknowledging the closeness of the geographical location of the practice to Corinth, which is the setting we're talking about, you can eliminate a lot of the conflicting evidence. Um, we'll go into some of it now, uh, some of the, the good evidence that we have now. Uh, Plutarch, who was a contemporary with Paul the Apostle, stated in his work an inquiry into the fashions and customs of Rome that it was normal for the Roman men to have their heads uncovered and for the women to be covered except in special situations such as funerals. Plutarch is writing from the Greek perspective in his writing. The fact that he explains to the Greeks that the practice of Roman men to wear coverings and the Roman women to be uncovered under those special circumstances was, was unusual shows that the Greeks regularly had the, the men uncovered and the women covered. Um, Plutarch himself lived in Rome for a time and had done much research. He quoted from a number of Roman authorities directly uh, in take, uh, Roman Questions uh, 14. Uh, Dio Chrysostom, who lived from about 40 AD to 120 AD, um, who was also a contemporary of Paul, writes in Tarsus, a Greek city in a Roman province of Asia Minor, um, the hometown of Paul the Apostle, um, that they had such strict customs that women who lived there were expected to cover their head, body, and even their faces, and that's in 3348 of uh, Dio Chrysostom. Um, the Jewish Encyclopedia records that from 450 BC to the early 3rd century AD, it was considered an immoral practice for a woman to walk about with her head uncovered. It was considered a form of nakedness. Um, it was actually a distinction of a married woman. That's in the Jewish Encyclopedia 2, 530 through 1, um, cross-references 6 and 158. Now, Alfred Edersheim's comments that it was considered disrespect for a man to pass by another with bared head is actually in conflict with what is recorded about how the custom came from a rabbi who died in the early 5th century, as recorded in the Jewish Encyclopedia. Um, so it's very unlikely that that would be the case if that rabbi didn't die until the 5th century, that in the 1st century that it was a, a custom. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, one of the more commonly quoted references on the matter, who lived from about 153 AD to 220 AD, was a Christian teacher in northern Africa. Um, in his work, The Instructor, Book 3, Chapter 12, he states that women ought to pray veiled. Now, while Alexandria is different than Corinth, it is noted by some that Apollos was from Alexandria, and Apollos had influence among the Corinthians, as is recorded by Luke in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 24 uh, through chapter 19, verse 1. And Apollos is mentioned by name in 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 12. Um, Tertullian is probably one of the most referenced in regards to this custom by many people. He was one of the, quote, anti-Nicene fathers. He wrote a book on the veiling of virgins and another on prayer where the custom is mentioned. He stated that it's becoming for women to be veiled when praying or prophesying. He also um, states that the woman, uh, the women of his congregation, um, which was the Montanists in Carthage, that it was to be done in public and not just in Christian assemblies. And he does a lot of more opinionated things, and uh, we'll mention him again later, maybe. Uh, John Chrysostom, who lived from 347 AD to 407 AD, a uh, long time afterwards, but still some relevance, um, confirms the same in his 26th homily on 1 Corinthians 11. He states that women were veiled all the time and not just in assemblies, and that it was a common custom and not limited to the church. Um, there were a lot of other references that could be cited, and especially if we include the topic of women having long hair. But that's pretty good for our discussion as being the most relevant. Now, when looking at all the evidence, many people's assertions are wrong. Some assert that it was normal for Jewish men to cover their heads in prayer. But the Jewish Encyclopedia says that this was not the custom until after the first century in response to the Christian practice. Also, 
The common view that Romans of both sexes not covering their heads is misleading. There is art and references depicting both genders covered and uncovered in various religious and everyday situations. It is not clear what all Romans did. Um, when all the quality primary sources are put together, um, though, we begin to get an accurate picture. Um, you have to have a uniform testimony from different sources and witnesses to establish what would have been a normal custom. I'll cite what Kevin Moore said in a summary of the matter. Uh, he says, While it may not be possible to be absolutely certain about the customs of Corinth in the mid-first century A.D., the evidence in Paul's writings and the above information provide a reasonably clear picture. Apparently, it was the general practice among nearly all cultures, especially Roman, Greek, and Jewish, for respectable women to have long hair and to regularly keep their heads covered in public. That was particularly expected of married women in order to show their faithfulness to their husbands. Virgins and prostitutes, on the other hand, in trying to attract men, did not always follow this practice. Men ordinarily kept their hair short and did not routinely cover their heads. For a woman to have short hair or for a man to have long hair was generally considered inappropriate for various reasons and was often the cause of derision. Some pagan religious practices appeared to have deviated from the normal standards of decency, but this was not as universal as is sometimes argued. Based on the foregoing conclusions, the discourse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 2 through 6 seems to be consistent with the general social customs of the time. Um, now, before we begin to go through the passage, it's important to remember that Paul is writing to them plainly. When we write letters or emails to people today, we expect them to get certain cultural references without us explaining everything to them. And the same goes for Paul. Paul is not writing a dissertation on the history and the role of head coverings, why they have them, and who wears them. He is addressing a particular matter for them specifically. To press the matter any further than that is to go beyond the scope of the text, unless it is otherwise stated. He is writing with the expectation that his audience will understand what is being said. So now we'll go through the text, and then at the end I'll address some things briefly. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 6, we'll read it uh, verse by verse. Uh, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. So Paul praises the Corinthian believers in the beginning of the passage. He praises them for the specific reason that they remembered him in all things. That means they were keeping in mind how he had instructed them. He continues to say that they keep the ordinances. Um, the word ordinances here is paradosis, which um, BDAG, uh, which is BDAG is the abbreviated term used to refer to Walter Bowers, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. Um, the, generally, one of the most widely accepted is the most up-to-date lexicons on a scholastic scholarly level. Um, for Greek to English. Um, well, BDAG defines um, paradosis as the content of instruction that has been handed down, tradition of teachings, commandments, narratives, et al. Um, BDAG is the most up-to-date lexicon there is, at least that I'm aware of. Um, there's nothing necessarily wrong with Strong's lexicon at the back of, at the back of his concordance or Young's at the back of his, but BDAG is much more extensive in its entries. Um, though I would recommend that you stay away from Vines, um, because his methodology leaned a lot on etymology in a way that was in vogue for his time, but has since been shown to be flawed. Um, but anyways, so the ordinances are those things that Paul had already instructed them in previously. Um, those teachings that had been handed down from him to them. Um, he's praising them that they were keeping all those things. Now, this is very important to note. Paul says that they were keeping them. He specifically states that they were keeping them as he delivered them to them. That is very important to take notice of because it shows that the issue of head coverings was not an ordinance. Paul had taught them the ordinances and they were keeping them. Yes, he had to correct a few things about 
how they were doing them in the sense of the other ordinances, but they hadn't perverted baptism. They hadn't denied baptism. They hadn't perverted communion or denied it, etc. They were ex- weren't exercising discernment about some things about how to go about enacting them, but that's not the same thing. That's not a doctrinal issue in that sense. He specifically states here that they were keeping the ordinances, all of them, as he delivered them to them. And keep that in mind, this is strengthened as we get into verse 3. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Now the Greek word underlying but here, the beginning of verse 3, is the particle, the Greek particle, de. And it is adversative here. Um, that means that Paul is introducing a new subject to the Corinthians um, from the previous verse. This contradicts what some people teach, saying that the head coverings issue is part of the ordinances that he previously spoke of. People such as Kerrigan Skelly have made that mistake in their talks about this subject. And I'm not attacking him either. I think that he does some good teaching. Um, but, you know, he's wrong on this. Paul is not rebuking them for something that he previously had told them. Uh, people try to include it in the sense that it should be held on the same par as baptism or communion. And that's just false. If the Corinthians were observing head coverings as an ordinance, like that connection would mean, then Paul would not be able to say that the Corinthians were keeping the ordinances as he delivered them to them. They were confused about the matter, and that's why Paul had to address it. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, he has to correct them about how they were conducting certain ordinances, such as communion, that is very different than there being contention about whether or not something was needed. Paul mentions that there was contention about this issue. Um, That could not be the case if they were simply keeping the ordinances and they included head coverings as an ordinance. No, Paul is addressing a new topic here. If you read Dan Wallace's article about the head coverings issue, you'll see that he dismisses the entire no-applicability view by several flimsy assumptions. He interprets verse 2 fairly well, but then assumes that the de, translated usually as but, is transitional and not adversative, and he gives no reason why. Um, that means that he believes that the ordinances that Paul praises the Corinthians for keeping includes artificial head coverings, which doesn't fit the passage at all. Um, based on this assumption, he uses verse 2 to reinterpret verse 16. He also then incorrectly connects the use of epinai, I'm goodness, uh, he incorrectly connects the use of epinau in both verse 2 and verse 17 to say that the passages are talking along the same lines. Again, based on his assumption that death is transitional and not adversative. Um, and while, and I have to say this to make it clear, um, whenever you're doing with Greek and stuff, like when you're discussing whether or not debt is transitional or adversative, the only reasons that you can give are not grammatical. It's syntax. It's you are choosing based upon which best fits the passage. And Dan Wallace does not give any defense as to why tra- it should be transitional and not adversative. Whenever it being adversative better fits the entire point of the passage. Um In the end, though, based on his assumption that he doesn't justify in the article, he says that the passage is still, still that the passage is um, still applicable today. What I find funny, though, is that he ends the article by saying that we don't have to do it. So it's a contradiction. As much as I appreciate Dan Wallace's Greek scholarship, I have his intermediate um, slash advanced grammar on my shelf. I continually find his reasoning lacking in what he does. I'm not saying that to insult him. I'm just saying to point out what I think is obvious. Um, But continuing, Paul continues by stating that the head of every man is Christ, uh, etc. He introduces a theological principle, a doctrinal point, which will be the basis for his discussion about their practice. Um, This would not have been a new concept to the Corinthians. Uh, He's merely stating the principle upon which his practical instruction is based. Uh, The issue is headship and subjection. Who is subject to who? Woman is subject to man, man is subject to Christ, and Christ is subject to the Father. That's the theological principle underlying the point of the practical instruction that Paul gives in this passage. Now, when we get into verse 4, 
we start getting into the point of our discussion. Uh, Every man praying and prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Uh, We're going to couch the discussion of praying or prophesying for a while, really just because let's just focus on the actual reason people consider this passage. It's about covering. Um, The concept presented in this passage is that of being covered or not covered. There is not middle ground or a third option. There is covered or not covered. Um, But as we look at verses 4 through 6, I have to mention that most people miss the point of them entirely. Um, Paul is speaking culturally. Um, Remember what I said at the beginning. You have to look at the cultural setting first. And first and foremost, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in the first century A.D. If you want to understand this passage correctly and apply it correctly, then you need to know how they understood it first in the context of when they actually received it from Paul. You can't just look at the Greek. You can't just look at the text. You have to look at the culture, the Greek, and the text. If you don't, you are going to screw up this passage. And that's why there is so much controversy over this passage. Not everyone is doing their homework. Now, the words, his head covered, in the Greek are katakephales. Kata is a preposition, and kephales is in the genitive, which means that kata should be understood in the sense of down from. Um, There is no object here for the word. And I mean that in the sense that there is nothing here said here that tells us what the head is being covered with. Uh, when that's the case, it is usually because it is implied in the text and understood. Uh, remember, Paul's writing with the understanding that the Corinthians know to what he is referring. Um, now, dishonoreth in the Greek is the, is the word kataiskuno. Uh, it means the same as it's translated, but also has the sense of shame. It's in the present active tense. Now, that means that as long as the action continues, the dishonor, the shame continues. Um, In the context, it's as long as the man prays or prophesies with his head covered that he dishonors his head. It continues. Um, Now, the word covered is how it's translated in the King James Version. Most Bible versions translate catechophale secone, as either having his head covered or having something on his head. I believe that's a little misleading. Kata has here the sense of down from, not covered. Um, covered has a very specific connotation to in English to us today, and that's the only reason that I say it's a little misleading. I'm not um, trying to question translation of Scripture in that sense. I'm just saying... The word covered today, if you ask somebody on the street what the word covered means, they think of something on top of. And that's not the sense of how kata is used here. Um, and I, So I think to translate it that way is very misleading, but I understand why scholars choose it. Um, but just remember through this passage that this verse is only emphasizing that a man should not have something down from his head while praying or prophesying. Another important thing to note um, before moving on, is that there is nothing in the phrase to emphasize cloth either. Nothing. It does not tell us with what the head is not to be covered, um, at least not in this verse. Sometimes, though, we, we come to the passage um, with certain things already assumed because we see the English word covering or covered, and we automatically assume a veil or cloth, especially those of us with the church background. Um. Well, let's let the passage instruct us and not insert things into it. When the passage says veil or cloth, then we'll take it. But we shouldn't bring it up until the passage does. 1 Corinthians 11, 5 and 6. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. So the woman is set in contrast to the man. If she does the same thing as the man, then she dishonors her head. Now in this verse, the Greek word underlying covered slash uncovered is different than in the last part. It is now now the word is different. It's though it's the word akatakalypto. Now the only part of this word that means covered is kalyptos. 
the alpha at the beginning meaning not, and kata is hard to nail down. We may assume it carries the same meaning throughout the passage. Um, you do have to be careful, though, in emphasizing too much the parts that make up compound Greek words for the same reason that our English word butterfly says nothing about butter moving through the air. A word is not necessarily the sum of its parts. In this passage, though, I think it is safe to say that it does carry the same sense throughout the passage for the reason that kata was used independently just preceding this verse. So we may understand a catacalypto as meaning not down-covered. Um, so long as a woman's head is not down-covered, she dishonors her head. And the same thing for the, the word dishonors, uh, dishonoreth here. The dishonor lasts as long as the action does. Now, Paul nowhere in this passage addresses the setting of the practice. Anywhere. He merely condemns the practice. It doesn't matter where it is being done. The point is that it is being done. Uh, Kevin Moore in his thesis had this to say. He said, In the church of the first century A.D., women as well as men were endowed with the miraculous gift of prophecy. For example, Acts 2.17 and Acts 21.9. They were expected to be teachers. Acts chapter uh, Titus chapter two verses eleven, uh, two, chapter two verses three through four, and workers in the Christian community. Romans sixteen one, Philippians four two through three. It stands to reason that if God had given these gifts and responsibilities to women, He would have expected them to be utilized. At the same time, however, there were certain restrictions placed upon Christian women. They were not permitted to teach or to have authority over a man, 1 Timothy 2, 11-12. Nor were they allowed to speak as to lead the public assembly, 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35. Um, and I do encourage you, if you have more questions about that, whether or not that seems to be a contradiction, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, um, read Kevin Moore's lengthy topic about that. And, and I agree with him that it does not mean what most people think it means. Um, but moving on. In fact, Paul had specifically addressed several times in the epistle things being done in the assembly. So throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, he's constantly saying and emphasizing when he does not want something to not be done in the assembly of the church. Um, again, more comments. Notice that in 11, 2 through 16, Paul does not use the words come together as he does in eleven seventeen. When you assemble in a congregation, as he does in 11.18, come together in the same place, 11 verse 20, the whole congregation has come together, 14 verse 23, or you come together, as in 14 verse 26. Because no particular setting is specified in 11.2 through 16, these instructions would apply generally to any situation in which praying or prophesying was done. Now, Moore goes on to note how that in the early church congregations often met in homes, as Paul mentions in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, um, artificial head coverings, according to Clement of Alexandria 3.12, says that they were not typically worn when the woman was at home. And this would raise several legitimate questions from women. Um, what about all female gatherings when no male was present? Would they have to, when, wh would they have to wear them then? Again, it is the general practice that Paul addresses and not the setting. Now, Paul's statements that if a woman was uncovered, that it is even all one as if she were shaven, strongly implies that what is being discussed is an artificial head covering, a cloth or a veil, and not her hair. Both the internal evidence of the text and the external evidence of the culture indicate that an artificial head covering is what is meant. If long hair was meant as the covering in verse 5, then Paul would essentially be saying, if a woman prays or prophesies without long hair, then it's the same as her not having long hair. And that's redundant. It's not what Paul is saying. Also, in verse 6, would then go on to say, for if the woman does not have long hair, then let her cut it off. Well, if her hair is not long, then how could she cut it short? It would be already be short, which is the issue. Paul here says that if the woman does not wear an artificial head covering or a veil or cloth, then she should cut off her hair. Obviously, then, the covering cannot be long hair, and it obviously wasn't okay culturally for a woman to not wear an artificial covering even if she had long hair, 
Paul says in verse 6 that if she refuses to be covered, then she should cut off her hair. Now, some have pointed out that the Calypto words, um, the ones translated in the various forms of covered, do not include in them a requirement of cloth or garment. And that's true. But the culture in which the Corinthians lived dictates that it must be, in addition to the textual reasons that I just gave. Um, some have also tried to say that because different words such as shorn and shaven are used, that there were three different hair lengths mentioned. And this actually doesn't fix the problems with the long hair covering view. Shorn and shaven are equated in the text as being inappropriate, both of them. Also, culturally, a woman was looked down on for having shaved head uncovered, a short hairstyle uncovered, and if they have long hair uncovered. All three were seen as inappropriate. The cultural norm at the time required certain things of women. Across ethnic lines was the idea that short hair on a woman was a shame, whether it was short a little bit or whether it was completely shaved off. It was almost unanimously considered shameful. It was a punishment for adulterers, and some historians have noted that it was customary for slaves and harlots to cut their hair short. Another historian notes that a lesbian by the name of Demonassa of Corinth had the skin of her head shaved close, in the sense that her hair was so close that it was down to the skin of her head. The custom of the time was that respectable women wore their hair long and had it covered in public. Paul is saying that if a woman was to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered, it bears the same shame as if she were the same cultural pariah. It was unfitting for a professing Christian woman to be seen like a harlot, homosexual, or adulterer. So Paul is directly appealing to the shame that a woman had culturally if she chose to go about uncovered, but especially praying or prophesying in the context. And some have tried to argue that there is nothing in the passage that appeals to customer or culture, and this is where some, such as David Berceau, have made mistakes. Again, I'm not attacking the man, but his teachings on this matter are wrong. He too blindly follows the anti-Nicene fathers, and the anti-Nicene fathers are not an infallible commentary on the scriptures. They're just men, and the ones who wrote on the topic of head coverings were not in the same geographical location as Corinth, or were in the, in the same century as when it was written. Now, in this verse, verse 6, Paul himself appeals to the cultural expectations. He says, but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. My question is, if it's a shame, to who? To whose judgment is Paul appealing? God's? No, because he would then assert it because he is an apostle. The churches? So you're going to say, um, you know, if it's a shame to you, then do it. Well, not here at least. He's appealing to the church's judgment about whether or not it is a shame to the culture around them. He is saying, if she refuses to wear head covering while praying or prophesying, then let her hair be cut. Then let her let her cut her hair and cast off the whole principle of subjection. If it's but if it's a shame for her to be like that in people's eyes, then just let her wear head covering. The entire point of what Paul is saying is what is appropriate to not bring a reproach upon the church in the sight of the world. And this is where the analogy of a Christian woman being topless while praying or prophesying came from. It would be the same cultural shame. Paul is directly appealing to culture. Now, when, now he is basing it on a doctrinal principle, of course, but the doctrine is that of the subjection of the woman to the man. The doctrine is not artificial head coverings. So if you take anything away from this, or at least take this away, Paul is not formulating a command for women to wear artificial head coverings. He is merely stating that a woman who ordinarily has her head covered in public should also cover her head while praying or prophesying. And that is the simplicity of the matter. And there are two conditional statements in verse 6 that reinforce this interpretation of verse 5. In essence, Paul is saying, if the latter is shameful, having the hair cut off, so too is the former, having her head covered. Another note before moving on. Um, the word also here in verse 6 is the Greek word chi. It is cumu cumulative, and it carries with it the sense of in addition to. Um, if you are going to continue to pray or prophesy with your head uncovered, then in addition to that, you might as well cut off your hair. He is trying to impress upon them the shame of it. 
1 Corinthians 11.7 For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. The glory of God, it's been said, is reflected in man's demeanor. The glory of man is reflected in woman's demeanor, and the glory of the woman is reflected in her hair, as we'll see later. Um, verses 8 through 9. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So Paul goes back to creation to give a reason why woman is the glory of man. She was created for man. There is nothing to suggest that Paul is appealing to creation to say that head coverings are binding today. Um, there is no mention of Eve having an artificial head covering. Neither is there anything mentioned in the law of Moses, which would be expected if artificial head coverings were binding for women from creation until at least that time period, not, not the less to say to present day. Even in the New Testament, there is no mention of artificial head coverings outside of this one passage in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, unless you include Paul's recounting of Moses wearing a veil when he came down from Mount Sinai, uh, which he recounts in 2 Corinthians. Verse 10, For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head, because of the angels. Now, some have asserted that due to the ancient practice of rhetoric and the chiastic structure of 11.2-16, through 16, that this is the focal point of the passage. Though to be certain, and there was a general consensus among scholars that this is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament to exegete with great certainty. Um, in my opinion, the most weight comes to the view that Paul is appealing to the angels of God willfully subjecting themselves to God as an example to women for themselves to willfully subject themselves to men after the appropriate manner. Uh, the interpretation of this is referring to the Nephilim theory in any way causes many more problems than it actually helps to solve. But the certain part is that Paul says that the woman ought to have power on her head. Now, the word underlying power is exousia, which usually denotes authority, right, or power. Um, the basic sense that is carried in this word is freedom of choice or right. And when we think about someone having authority over us, we understand that it means that they have a certain right or freedom of choice over us. Um, and that's consistent with the way the word is used in 1 Corinthians up to this point, like in chapter 7, verse 37, chapter 8, verse 9, chapter 9, verses 4, 5, 6, and 12. Um, so if we, do, if we are to understand the word in this way, then Paul is saying that the woman has the freedom of choice in this matter to willfully submit herself after the same manner of the angels willfully submit themselves to God. And he's encouraging them to say, it's your freedom of choice to do this. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, 11 through 12. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. The word nevertheless, the Greek word underlying is plen, um, or plain. I can't remember. I've got it transliterated in my notes. Forgive me. Paul breaks off where he was at before to emphasize something important. He goes out of his way to emphasize that men, in another way, are dependent on women by means of procreation. And the only man who didn't come from a woman, in that sense, is Adam. Um, Paul was most likely trying to head off any ideas of abusing women because they were subject to man. Um, and some people push that too far. Uh, yes, woman is subject to man, but like we recounted earlier, and I've said multiple times, um, they're not property. God has a lot more commandments about how a man is to treat his wife than the wife towards her husband, because he has a lot more responsibility and accountability if he is in any position of authority. Um, so be careful. 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen, Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Um, Paul has the Corinthians make a personal judgment for the second time. This shows that women were used to covering their heads as a custom. If that wasn't the case, then the Corinthians could not have judged it to be improper in any way for them to not cover their heads. If someone asked you to judge for yourself whether or not a red squiggly line was appropriate, 
or not, you would have no way of judging it appropriate or not unless you had some normal customary context to go by. Again, Paul shows that this is custom that he is talking about. It was cultural custom for women to go about in public with their heads covered, regardless of how long their hair was, which is why Paul can tell them to judge in themselves about the matter. It was common knowledge. 1 Corinthians 11, 14-15 Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. God, having made man, has borne, bore witness to this principle in nature. A man naturally desires short hair, and a woman naturally desires long hair. So Paul is appealing to how God has written upon the hearts in their natural tendencies to bear witness to the practice of an artificial covering being appropriate for a woman and being inappropriate for a man in this state. So he's using the illustration of create of how God has written on their hearts. Men, men naturally desire short hair. Women naturally desire long hair. Um, to switch them seems off. A man is generally considered feminine to have long hair, or in a sense today, rebellious. And a woman is generally considered masculine to have short hair. Now, the Greek word underlying given her is didatai. It is in the perfect passive indicative. And what that means is that it cannot be saying that God has given the woman long hair only. Um, the main reason for this being that God has made it so that both men and women can grow long hair. And if you think about it, God has not given the woman some ability to have long hair that he did not give to men. God has given both men and women the same exact kind of hair, essentially. Both genders are equally capable of long or short hair. What is being said goes back to the exousia, or the power, of the woman to do so. The woman has been given the liberty to wear her hair long, in contrast to the man. She has the freedom of choice to do so. Men have not been given the option for long hair in the same sense as women. Uh, we come to the most debated part of this verse, possibly of the passage, and there are competing views. Um, the latter part of the verse, for a covering. The Greek word underlying for is anti. Depending on who you ask, it means different things here. Um, and the thing you have to understand is most people don't, don't really have a problem with how it's translated. Um, people think that that's the issue. That's not really the issue. Um, some people try to translate it intentionally, hugely biased um, towards their view. Um, but the, the sense of the word is not really in question. It generally means equivalence, substitution, um, in place of, and that sort of thing. But that's still open for interpretation. That's still interpreted two ways, at least. Um, the definition I use of the word is from uh, BDAG, um, indicating that one thing is equivalent to another for as in place of, and they give the example, hair as a covering. Um, there are differing opinions about how to interpret this, though. Um, the first view is that the equivalence of a woman's long hair with a covering, um, the Greek indicates it is a mantle or garment, a uh, parabolion, um, is merely analogous. It's just an analogy. They say that Paul is merely setting the two up against one another to show the appropriateness of the artificial covering, um, that Paul is using the fact that God has given the woman a natural covering to bear witness to the practice of an artificial covering. Uh, the second view is that Paul is stating that the woman's long hair has been given her in the place of an artificial head covering, that she can wear her hair long and she doesn't need to wear an artificial head covering because of that. Those who hold to this view say that Paul is telling us that if a woman has long hair, then she doesn't have to wear an artificial head covering. Now, there are arguments for both views that seem to make sense. Um, personally, I lean towards the first view, um, but I understand why people hold to the second also. Notwithstanding, the view that long hair is given to replace or stand in the place of an artificial covering, I believe, has insurmountable problems that we've gone over already. Um, for for the, one of the big reasons in uh, verse, I think it's verse 5 or 6, whenever Paul says, if you refuse to wear an artificial head covering, then have her cut off her hair. That's a big obstacle. When so, And if Paul was to hear to contradict himself here and say, well, if you don't wear a head covering, then it's okay because you have long hair. That's... That is a direct contradiction, and so that can't be what is being said. 
Um, either way, you'll see that it's beside the point when we consider the next verse. Verse 16, But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. The word but here in the Greek is again de, again adversative. Paul cuts through the whole matter to make a new point. So Paul is like here, okay, but nevertheless, let's just get down to here's the point. Um, if any man seems to be contentious, um, this would seem to indicate that there were some people who were being contentious about this. Otherwise, why would Paul say this? He says, we have no such custom. We indicates Paul and the other apostles. And this is understood because in the latter part of the verse, it is distinct from the churches of God. He says, we, and then it makes that distinguishable from the churches of God. Um, the Greek word underlying custom is sunethea, which means a usage or practice that has become established or standard custom, objectively custom, habit, usage. Um, that's from BDAG. Um, the Greek word underlying such is ten, meaning of such a kind or such as this. Um, we have no such custom as this kind or um, of such a kind as this. Some have questionably translated this as other, uh, trying to say that it says we have no such, no other custom. And that's just an intentional, that's a forced translation. It's, it's, an, it's a forced translation to try and force an interpretation, which is morally wrong. Two facts are opposed to that. It's never translated as other anywhere else in the New Testament. And somebody say, well, you know, that could be, this could be the one place where it's supposed to be that. And yes, that could be the case. But there are at least seven other Greek words for other, and none of those were chosen by Paul. So Paul says, the apostles and I have no such habitual practice. Now, there are several views that have been set forth as to what custom is being referred to, where Paul says, we have no such custom. So what custom is he referring to? Uh, first view uh, is that he's saying contentiousness. Some have said that Paul is telling them that there is no such custom of being contentious in the church of God. And those who put this forth mainly do so because it is the view of Tertullian and his dis disciple Cyprian. Um, for this reason, those who are heavily influenced by the anti-Nicene fathers usually hold to this interpretation. I believe Kerrigan Skelly does, um, David Rousseau. Um, I believe the head covering movement, uh, but don't quote me on that. I must emphasize this. The anti-Nicene fathers are not some infallible commentary on the scriptures. You would be appalled by some of the things that they said. They contradict themselves and the scriptures occasionally. At best, they are good for historical look at what a teacher in ancient times taught. They are no more infallible than your pastor. Regarding this interpretation, there are some problems. A custom, according to how Paul uses it, is a habitual practice that has come to be accepted because of its regular usage. Why would contentiousness fit that description? Being contentious cannot be considered a custom. Also, this interpretation is unnatural to the Greek. It's not really supported by the Greek. Um, this is usually the interpretation chosen by those who want to assert that artificial head coverings are supposed to be in effect today. It is lacking in support, though, and it ignores the context of the passage culturally. Um, the next view is that the custom is uncovered women. Some have said that Paul is telling them that the Church of God has no such custom as uncovered women praying or prophesying. However, there was no indication that this had become a custom or habitual practice among the Corinthians. If it had become a custom and was regularly practiced, and it was considered shameful by cultural standards, we would expect Paul to give a much stronger rebuke. In addition to that, if women praying or prophesying uncovered had been become customary for them, then why does Paul appeal to the Corinthians to judge in themselves the dishonor and unfitting nature of it, if that very practice was their own custom? He will be telling them to discern for themselves, based upon their own judgment, whether or not it was fitting, when that was what they are doing and had already approved. The passage does not support this interpretation, and it seems forced, and has no support from the context, from the text, I mean, or outside the scriptures by cultural standards. This is again a normal interpretation chosen by those who want to assert that artificial head coverings are in effect today. 
Uh, the third option is that the co custom he is referring to is covered women. Uh, given the evidence of the text and the cultural customs outside of the text, the only interpretation that fits is that Paul is telling them that the apostles had no such custom of women praying with their heads covered. It was a cultural custom that they didn't start. It was around for centuries before Christianity started, and it didn't originate with Judaism either. Uh, Kevin Moore sums it up thus. He says, The evident custom suggested in the immediate and historical context of the passage is the convention of women covering their heads. Many commentators argue that Paul is here affirming the universal practice of the churches, but this is just the opposite of what he actually says. He is not appealing to something the churches do, but rather to something the churches do not have. It is a matter of what was practiced or not practiced in other congregations, but the point is that the head covering custom was not a Christian dogma. It did not originate with the apostles or the churches. It was not bound by the apostles and the churches. The head covering was likely worn by Christian ladies in many different regions, but this was part of their culture, not part of their religion. There were things which Paul taught and appointed in every congregation. He mentions them in uh, chapter 4, verse 17 and 717. But this was obviously not one of them. It is wrong to say that human custom is never mentioned in this passage. Paul makes a distinction between the inspired precepts that he had delivered them, verse 2, and no such custom, verse 16. And I will go on, I will simply quote Moore's summary of his conclusions, uh, his conclusion, since I agree with him and he said it a lot better than I did. I can. In an indirect and tactful manner, the apostle tries to assist the Corinthians in making their own decisions. He compliments them and introduces the underlying principle of God's hierarchical design, verses 1 through 2. He appeals to social disgrace, verses 4 through 6, and to female subordination, verses 7 through 9, while affirming the woman's liberty, verse 10, and male-female mutuality, verses 11 through 12. He then calls for their own judgment based upon propriety, verses 13 through 15. In the end, however, Paul cannot make a binding law, so he concedes that this is neither an apostolic nor a congregational custom, verse 16. This does not negate anything he has said, but it emphasizes that this matter is not a religious custom and should therefore not be an issue for congregational disputes, for example, like he says in Titus 3.9. Now, before I close, this was an issue that was raised to my wife and I by me coming across some of the things that we're saying um, and introducing the ideas. I'll specifically tell you, I'd come across David Brousseau's things, and I'd liked some of the things that he had said. Um, Will the real heretics please stand up? There's a lot of good points that he brings up. There's a lot of good historical context for some of the things that the early Christians believed and taught. Um, and when it came to the head coverings issue, I was intrigued that this was something that they did. The problem, though, is that it's being portrayed by a lot of people as though it's a Christian custom or a Christian ordinance or doctrine, and it's not. And I was almost complete. I was pretty much wholly convinced when I looked into it that it was because I was not doing as in-depth research and cross-checking, evaluating as I should have, much to the chagrin of my wife. And my wife, um, who was obviously resistant to this, um, was continually pointing out some of the flaws in the ways in which it was being defended. And she began to do her own research. Um, and in the end, um, some, the Lord pointed out to me that um, I, there was something that I had not specifically double-checked. And as soon as I double-checked it, the linchpin of the entire defense of the artificial head coverings movement came crashing down. Um, it did. And what is frustrating is, like I said in the beginning, there's a lot of people who do a little bit of research. And there are so many conflicting sources about this issue. You read three out of seven customs and manners books, they'll support head coverings, usually the older ones. You choose three out of the uh, another three out of the seven, you'll get the opposite. And then you get one who says, I don't know. Um, it's really frustrating. 
there is a mixed bag on all of these things. But like I said at the beginning, when you eliminate outdated sources and you go to primary sources and then you examine them, not just buy them, examine them, you see that this is the only logical conclusion from this passage when you take everything together. Some people just talk about the text. That's not good enough. Some people talk just about culture. That's not good enough either. Just because the early Christians did something does not mean anything. Our authority is still the scriptures. Um, and so I would encourage you, because this was something that I was willing to do. It's not something that I'm talking about from an outside perspective. I understand why people believe they have to wear head coverings, because I was, I was pretty much convinced of it myself. But it's just not what is supported by the text, culture, or the Greek. Um, there is no support for it, really. It is um, a lot of people have made it an external badge of self-righteousness, and I'm not trying to be mean about that. Um, anytime you are basing your righteousness on something that you wear, it is legalism, and it is not Christian. Um, nowhere does the New Covenant, the New Testament, teach that because of something we wear or do not wear, it affects our relationship with God. Anywhere. Um, that is a legalistic custom that comes more from a, a paganistic understanding of how God is in his nature. Um, now, I believe that I addressed a lot of questions that people have. Um, I also tried to address some of the most common defenses or arguments that come up regarding this passage. Obviously, I can't be exhaustive in a podcast episode. Um, in the process of my studying for this episode, I came across Kevin Moore's thesis, and he honestly just had the same basic arguments that I was going to put forth, albeit in a much more developed way, um, a much better way. And so a lot of credit to him and his paper on this issue. Um, I will put a tab on the podcast page at www.remnantbiblefellowship.com uh, above this episode so that you can download it and read it for yourself. And I would encourage you that if this is a big issue to you, that you do that. Um, I hope that I helped some of you to have a better understanding of this passage and issue. Um, as always, I'm available for email or through the Facebook page, facebook.com slash rbfellowship. Um, and my email is given at the end of every episode. Thank you for listening to Remnant Bible Fellowship. We do hope and pray that you would commit your life to Christ and continue in Him. We desire to see people seeking Jesus Christ and coming to know Him personally. If you have questions about salvation, the Bible, or your own walk with Christ, please contact Brother Jonathan by email. Brother John, that's J-O-N, at remnantbiblefellowship.com. That's Brother John at remnantbiblefellowship.com.